I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking to Steve Potts. Steve is a hugely successful serial entrepreneur in the life sciences, leading several companies to develop new treatments for cancer. Steve will be giving congressional testimony about the Inflation Reduction Act this Wednesday. He's also a member of the board of directors of AZ Bio, Arizona's Biotech Association. Steve, it's always great to see you. Great to see you as well. Thanks for coming in today. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for bringing me somewhere that dropped the temperature about 10 degrees. <laughs> Are you cold? Well, Do you need a sweater? <laughs> <laughs> no, although we're about to start our nine months of good weather in Arizona. We've, we've had our two months of brutal weather. You're a rarity, Steve. You are someone who has successfully started multiple companies that have brought drugs and therapeutics to market and diagnostics too. This is one of the hardest things to do statistically, and you've done it multiple times being a successful serial entrepreneur in the biotech sector. How hard is it to bring a therapy to market? You know, people don't realize how tough this is. You know, it's kind of like if you've been mountain climbing, you know how hard it is. If you've been watching on TV or hearing about it, it's different. Um, you know, I often, like with my friends and neighbors, when I introduce this concept of drug development, you know, I, I will, because they hear in the news, they hear Stanford cured cancer, they hear Harvard cured cancer, and they wonder, well, why when I have cancer, is it not, it's not everything cured? You know, and I, what I what I will tell them, I say, you know, if you, if you get a room full of people, men and women who are, you know, PhD scientists who've spent their whole career working on cancer, and you say, so this is, think of it, like 40 people times 30 years each of experience post-PhD. And I'm mid-career. I'm 51. Um, and you say, you know, have you cured cancer in mice? Raise your hand. Every hand goes up. You know, that's the first part is is seeing if the drug is good enough to um, have an impact in mice. Um, you know, we basically model cancer in mice. And then you say, okay, great. Now, raise your hand if you have a successful cancer drug. And you think, you know, look at, think about the room. 40 scientists top in their field, 30 years each, that is a lot of, <laughs> of a lot human of worth. Yeah. And you'll see Two? a few hands, you know, and honestly, like for a good career, for people that are earlier stage, um, one or two drugs yeah. is a great career. But, and you say, man, that's really hard. But the other hand, you know, you've been part of a drug that now will be given, be out there for society forever. So yes, you know, you have to recoup the cost, you got the prices high, but after that patent period, that drug is available, you know, and it should be available as a generic forever to society. So if you think about the end of your career in any other field, I mean, you, you basically, you know, we're all want the right to be able to say in our career, we successfully got one or two drugs over the finish line that are given to patients that will be forever given to patients and will you know will ultimately become generics and be you know you'll you'll see these drugs out used in in developing countries for for you know for very minimal cost eventually so it's a it's a fascinating industry i don't think people realize how hard it is though um and i i do think it's we all kind of talk about our successes you know, I mean, my career is a good example. I've been doing this, you know, PhD in 1999, UC Davis, post-PhD last, I guess it's almost 25 years now. I've been involved in two successful drugs. I had my own small role in each. Um, there were others that played bigger roles, um, but a ton of failures, you know, a ton yeah. of things where you're on, the, you're on the mountain, you're like, how do we end up here? You know, and it could be that the you didn't get the permits in Nepal, you thought you were going to get you turned around. There's an avalanche. There's all kinds of things that happen because drug development is truly one of the, it's one, it's a very complex endeavor, but it's one of the hardest endeavors that involves hundreds of people that all kind of has to align in order to get that drug across the line and, and approved. And it's also tremendously expensive and entails an enormous amount of risk. And so 
when you see a drug, what's what people don't understand is the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that have had to go in to that development. And a lot for every one success, there's 10, 20, 30, a hundred, $500 million that's been thrown right down the Swanee that has yeah. in many ways facilitated that success. Yeah. yeah. And so do you bake that into the overall cost or do you say you're guaranteed to get one drug done? That's the total cost. Do you say, look, you know, just, just the first drug that goes into human first in human, we call them first in human clinical trials in cancer for every one of those. And that's a huge win. I mean, if you can get your biotech from, I have this movie script, this drug idea to, you know, four, three or four years to first in human, that's a big deal. Um, from there, from that point, it's sort of like, you know, the second second camp in Everest, from there to actually approval is one out of 20 right. at best. So that's, that's 5%. Um, I'd like to tell people just to kind of bring home the costs. I just, you know, we budget $200,000. So that's, that's basically five patients per million dollars, $200,000 per patient, direct costs that we spend on American hospitals, American academical centers. That's, that's direct costs for what it takes to actually adequately make sure you have a patient enrolled, you're giving them the drug, everyone's doing what they need to do, compliance, all of that. That's our direct costs on those patients. So you think about that hundreds, thousands of patients, how much just that piece of it adds up to. It's a lot. And so, you know, there is just no way to short circuit this. This is what it takes to develop a drug. You've done both large molecules, small molecules. You've done vaccines. You've been involved in multiple. Oncolytic viruses. Yes. Yeah. You've done all sorts of development pathways. What are the differences between those from a, from a standpoint, if you are deciding to develop a vaccine, which you did an, immuno, an immunotherapy, you were involved in that. What are the challenges and the benefits of both from a developer and also the risk? Yeah. I like to simplify things to just say there's kind of two paths to approval. There's an NDA drug, which is which is small molecules and includes oligos, peptides, but it's basically a small molecule path. It we call it the NDA path, um, and then there's another path for biologics, which is which is not only antibodies, as you know, it's vaccines, sure. oncolytic viruses. I just came off, you know, working on that area. I like to think of it like these are two legs, you know, in 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 one leg is small molecules, other leg is is biologics. It's interesting. They're equally difficult. I did a survey just just recently of 100 BCs, and that was the second question I asked was, which is harder, which is more risky? And I think probably the people doing small molecules, grass is greener, said you know, the other side, the other side looks better. So, but it was about fifty fifty. So right. neither one of them is. They all have their pros and cons from a development standpoint, but from a patient standpoint, you absolutely need both. Um, some of the advantages of small molecules are they're small; they can penetrate. They're brain penetrant. So think about you know, I if you think of cancer like a like weeds growing on your lawn. If you go out and apply weed killer everywhere but one little area, what's going to happen? All the weeds are going to grow there. So if you apply a, a biologic that can't penetrate the brain to everywhere on the lawn, except for that one little area of the brain, what's going to happen? The patient's going to die of, of brain metastasis. And it happens all the time. And, you know, and if you, if you talk to friends and family that have lost loved ones, so many of them will say, you know, the ultimate cause of death was, was brain metastasis. So these small molecules can penetrate the brain. We've gotten really good at doing that. Um, and, and so that's one thing a small molecule does really well. Other areas, think about Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, CNS. I mean, you want a brain penetrant drug. Um, and so it's another area that the small molecules play well in. And then another thing interesting is the small molecule can get inside the cell in a way that sometimes the biologic can't. So, um, a, you know, a small molecule, if, if you think about a cell going after cancer, you look for targets on the cell surface. 
and then you look for targets also inside. But if you have a biologic, all, you're basically stuck with just looking at things on the surface. Yeah, so, you're binding to yeah, the so surface of the you cell. I don't want to get too much in deep in the science, but basically just think of it, they're small, they're more brain penetrant, they're more, you have a lot more opportunity for targeting different things within the cell, the small molecules. So we need both legs. And the thing that concerns me right now is that with the Inflationary Reduction Act, we have treated these two totally separate, differently. So we've treated small molecules and said, okay, you have nine years before price control. But for biologics, you have 14 years. So what do you think that's going to, if you're an investor, what do you think, where are you going to go? And, and keep in mind that, you know, this is, this is healthcare. Things do not happen overnight. So if you have an amazing drug, sales do not ramp up overnight. So you get your sales kind of at the, towards the end of life. That's when they're maximum. So if you cut off nine to 14 years of sales, 13 years there, you're basically cutting off half the value of that small molecule program. So it's been devastating out there for for developers who are trying to develop and raise money for small molecule drug development for the, for the elderly, for large populations that, you know, where Medicare is, is intimately involved. You're going to be giving testimony this Wednesday in the Congress about the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm sure one of the things you're going to talk about is this differential between 9 and 13, the small molecules and the large molecules. You know, it's interesting. We published a study on the Inflation Reduction Act at Bio when we first met uh, a few months ago. And what we found was generally there was a good split of large and small molecules by clinical area. But when you looked at the neurological disorders, you know, there were 455 drugs that had been sourced and not one of those was a large molecule. All of, of them were small you molecules. in the brain. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of course. You've highlighted that the investors are making decisions about small molecules in particular. Well, what does the data show? Yeah. So if you just back off, you say, okay, who in, who funds these drugs that get on the market? There's a tiny amount of funding from the government, which is really basically all the early stage, the NIH work. Then there is a lot of funding from American venture capital groups, and that's probably over $100 billion per year of funding across 100 different VCs. There's that set of funding. And then there's funding from um, large pharmas. So it's hard to get visibility into the boardroom of a large pharma how they're investing because it's American, you know, enterprise. It, they, you know, they don't—they're not obligated to tell you what they're planning on doing. It's a very competitive. This is an incredibly competitive industry, but you can get some insight from how the VCs are thinking and how they're planning their funding. And for me personally, you know, I am a biotech entrepreneur. Um, I've, you know, I've raised for multiple different companies. Last time I, I, I raised uh, 75 million in two rounds for an oncolytic virus. That took 14 months um, and, you know, basically volunteering your time initially to get the company going. You know, we had good mouse data and we wanted to then move it on. I sort of joke, I call it Shark Tank for nerds. You go out and you talk to 100 different VCs and you get a lot of no's. You better be, you better be willing to get a lot of no's. I don't care how good your drug is, you still get a lot of no's. Um, you know, and by the way, during that process, the main, the smart, the savvy investors, they're looking at what is, where can, where will this drug have substantial economic return? What will it eliminate that we're currently spending in the healthcare system? So will this eliminate, you know, a million dollars of hospital stay costs? You know, will this, let's say it's a bladder cancer drug, will this eliminate getting bladder surgery, taking your bladder out? That's a $300,000 operation just to get the bladder out, much less all the horrible things you got to do with no bladder for, for, you know, for years after that. So they're looking at that as they evaluate it. So last summer I'm out, I'm fundraising, and I just noticed distinctly a difference in the, um, the VCs were not interested in small molecule work like they had been. And I wasn't really that up on IRA. I wasn't really sure about the, the actual details of what's following it. But what I found, and so it's sort of anecdotal, said, you know, so these 
you're, there's less interest than there was. What's, what's driving that? And what I learned is that it's this nine versus 13. It's a very obvious thing. If you're going to get half the, the, the years back for your investment, you're not going to keep funding it. So I, that was sort of anecdotal. So I was like, hmm, interesting. And then I, I asked myself around Christmas time, this is after I had been around for six months, am I the only one seeing this? And how do we put more quantitative data around at least my experience? So I, sur- I surveyed 100 VCs and biotech executives and said, you know, and two questions, are you seeing a decline in small molecule funding for the elderly? Are you planning a decline based on this IRA? And then second is small molecule biologics, you know, riskier. And it came back 85% of the VC funds. Again, this think of this is 100 VCs, 100, about 100 billion per year of funding that they, that they put into this. 85% of them are pulling out of small molecule research for the elderly as a result. Wow. So it's a huge impact. Wow. And you don't see it all play out because, and we can talk about why, you know, it, it's going to take time. But that was pretty distinctive. I also applaud, BioCentury's done some really great work on this, a very, you know, respected firm. They did a more formal survey and they saw the exact same thing. So you're already seeing these firms are just, they're doing the math and they're saying, look, if we can't pay back our investment, why would we put this kind of money into small molecule research? We just did an interview this week in BioCentury about our findings on the the 10 drugs that were selected for the Inflation mm-hmm. Reduction Act. And, and one of the people that we published with was John Lamatina, the former global head of R&D, president of R&D at Pfizer. And now he's on the board of PureTech Ventures, which is a, a pretty well-known VC fund. And John pointed out that they're seeing in their portfolio that they've flipped to 60% biologics and 40% small molecules. And That's it's probably, probably best case. And I'll it's probably it's, moving down. That's the people that are really passionate already about small molecules. Sure. And so those are the, those are the people, you know, but these other funds are, you know, they're 100% zero, some of them. So you're going to be presenting on the Hill this week. You're going to be giving testimony. One of the things we hear from the politicians a lot is, hey, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, it's only 10 drugs. If it's only 10 drugs, does that really matter, Steve? That's such a temporal. It's like saying, I mean, maybe it's like a global warming. Because it rained today, then I'm not worried about it. I mean, it's such a temporal way to think of this. And even in my own industry, I think there's people that are like, well, it's just 10. I'm not on the list. Yeah, not worried. And and I've I came up with a joke. I'm just calling that ostriching. Like I don't know if it's a word or not, but I'm I'm using it a lot. It is I'm now. just saying I'm ostriching. You know, and I think you probably if you Google it, you'll see a cartoon with an ostrich and some of the things of my my comments on the on people just ignoring this. But I mean, it, it is not ten. It's ten per year, and it's going to keep growing. And you know, this is not that many drugs that these companies make money off of. I mean, so. It's going to be up. It'll be up to fifty with before you know it. Basically, it's going to cover everything. Um, it's just a matter of time. So, yeah, there are even inside my industry, it's be like, well, we're not going to be subject to it, or hey, if we get on that list, we will have. You know, I don't. It, there's a lot of people with a lot of reasons why they're they're trying. It's it's so, so severe that honestly, there's a lot of people trying to think of you know reasons why maybe it won't be so bad. We need to make a change. We found that it's a few drugs that are driving the vast majority of the revenue. When you looked at the drugs that would be negotiated, what you find is it's really 10, 11 companies, about a quarter of the 40 that we thought would be involved in the negotiation that get hammered. And they get really hammered. I mean, they, yes. what's going to happen, Steve? I mean, you go out, you're searching for funding, to, and you've done it successfully. What's going to happen to the market if we're taking $80 billion out of those most successful assets, which have been funding a lot of the downstream R&D? What happens? I mean, we're already seeing it. Their investors pull out a small molecule research, and if we mess with the biologics, we'll do the same thing there. But let me let me quote your um, the White House fact sheet here about the 10 drugs in the first year. You know, it says, over the next four years... 
Medicare will negotiate prices for up to 60 drugs covered under Medicare Part D and B, and up to an additional 20 drugs every year after that. So we're looking at all drugs basically, you know, within a very short period of time. And, you know, if you think six years, but that's nothing. I mean, every time we try to justify an investment, these are 15-year climbs of, of Everest we're planning out. I mean, this is not something. So if you're thinking, you know, the next six years, you've got next four years, 60, and then it'll be, and then 20 per year after that, you're talking, that's 100 drugs by six years from now. And the problem is there's more legislation coming out. You have the Smart Pricing Act, yeah. which, you know, tries to double it. You've now got another bill that's coming out, the Pallone bill that's trying to, you go from 10 to 15, then to 50, do 50 drugs instead of 20. So it's like, we haven't done enough. We want to do more. Yeah. In drug development, you have toxicity and you have efficacy. Does the drug do does the drug do something good that you wanted it to do, and then the drug does have any side effects you didn't you didn't realize or plan for that that show up that you're trying to measure? And so, we're seeing some of this minor efficacy from this program, but none of the toxicity yet. And so, the American public and politicians are acting that, and they're saying, "Oh, look, you know, the public likes to see cheaper prices." Well, of course, you know. So we're saying, "Hey, everybody gets free books, but if you get free books, there'll be there's nobody going to be paid to write new books." Um, the world can't survive off of only libraries. You need bookstores. You need somebody paying authors to actually write these books. And so all you're seeing right now is that there's some very minor efficacy, you know, from this and, and none of the toxicity. And so sadly, I mean, I wish we could all get in the DeLorean and go forward 10 years and say, this is huge gap. Let's just take lung cancer. Sure. Because um, I've been involved in that for, you know, when I first started in 1999, everybody knew, you know, there was no point doing a lung cancer drug. I mean, it was, there was literally, there was nothing. It was, it was a wasteland for drug development. You just didn't go there because it was, nothing worked. And then you had Tarsiva come out. You go forward 20 years now, we've got some amazing drugs in lung cancer. And we're screaming for more because we have targeted therapies. But that went in 20 years. All these new small molecules have shown up in this lung cancer area. We have a lot more work to do, but, you know, in some of these other areas, pancreatic cancer, GBM, I mean, you know, there's a lot more that we're teeing off on, but you get in that DeLorean and go forward 10 years, you will see all the tox effects. You'll see like a gap. What happened to all this great innovation we had in small molecules? You're going to see a 10-year, you know, the hit is going to be a 10-year gap in these things. And, you know, that's my worry. But the American public doesn't get, you, we're only going to see the lack of all of these. And they're not seeing it right now. So, of course, there's a bandwagon of we lowered insulin prices. Let's go lower, you know, prices for everything. There's no side effect. Let's just keep doing it. What's interesting is we've seen these experiments run in Europe. Okay, Europe started cramming down on prices 20 years ago, 25 years ago, with the rollout of the centralized procedure in the European Medicines Agency in 2004. Before the rollout of the European Medicines Agency in 2004, if you look at Zocor, one of the first lipid-lowering treatments, that actually came out two, over two years before it was approved by the FDA. And you actually had people in the FDA going, wow, we got to up our game because Europe's like getting this stuff faster than we are. It's amazing now because if you look at Europe, it's an average of six to eight month delay. That's on average. If you look at France, 544 day delay for a cancer treatment compared to FDA and getting worse. Easily. Easily. And there was a study done by the U.S. Congress House Ways and Means Committee itself in 2018 when they were planning the HR3 bill to look at pricing. You know, if you look at 
what the U.S. had. They looked at, I think, 79 or 80 drugs. Europe had a quarter less drugs across an average, and Portugal had like 27 drugs, yeah. you know? So the vast majority of these things aren't even available. The, even in the EU's leaked draft general pharmaceutical legislation that, that was dropped on February, a 1,000-page unsearchable document, <laughs> if you looked at page 925 in the back, which some of us did, um, you found a chart that showed even in 2016, there was a 200 plus percent difference in available oncology products between the United States and Europe. We know what's going to happen, Steve. We, yeah. we know. Yeah. There's two effects that we've seen. One is societal. You're talking about the lack of access to, to these drugs for a long time in Europe. I grew up in England. I saw that. I mean, I had friends that had cancer and they just, they, they, the kind of treatments we, even at that time that they took for granted in the U.S. just simply weren't available for, for until years later in, in, in England. Um, you know, and so you're seeing a lot of that. You're also seeing a real shift in terms of leadership. Um, when I started my PhD, it was, it might have been even more Europe heavy than the US in terms of there were so many large pharma companies that had big, you know, big footprints and big research across across Europe. Now you see all of it really in the US. And I, I, I'm surprised even seeing how many oncologists are moving from Europe to the US um, because of just the challenges of getting access to these drugs. You know, they're involved in a clinical, I mean, imagine how frustrating it is for them. You're involved in a clinical trial in some of these European countries. But then there's no ability to actually, you know, there's no interest basically in having these patients have access and pay for the drugs early enough. And so they, they're, they're not getting the access like you would in the U.S. system. And we forget that. I mean, I think we tend to, as Americans, always have kind of a glass half empty view of all of our health care. But you forget we get amazing access to these, you know, new technology and new innovations faster than anyone else in the world. We looked at a group of CAR-T trials that were being published about four years ago, this is before COVID, and we were looking at the origination of these CAR-T trials. We saw over 200 CAR-T trials in China compared to 120 in the United States and only 40 in Europe. I guess what concerns us is there could potentially be a huge movement of R&D to China to say that we're going to be an exception and that we're if we price down by 50, 60% in the most advanced drugs, that we won't go the way Europe did, I think that's a fallacy. I think what you're seeing already is the Chinese are getting very aggressive and you're already seeing a lot of new development in China. More than half of all drugs developed are US-based. We've had, this has been an amazing American industry and it, it breaks my heart to see it slandered so easily um, by government studies, by university studies that are really not taking, really not adequately capturing the real value of all the work we do in drug development. This is an amazing American enterprise. It, it is very heavily American. You're going to see definitely a, like what we've seen in Europe, a slowdown on that side. And then you're going to see China roaring in. Um, they already are. And all of your concern is, is right on point in terms of China. So the Biden administration on August 29th published their first 10 list of drugs that will be negotiated as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and the prices will be implemented in 2026. Were you surprised by any of the selections? Did you have a chance to look at them? It was shocking, actually, how, you know, and again, I'm not a policy person. I, I develop <laughs> drugs for a living. We wouldn't even be talking if I didn't, didn't have our industry disrupted as bad as it has been by, you know, small molecules with IRA. This is an amateur's lens on this, but, you know, it's just surprising to me how few were cancer drugs. Given the price of cancer drugs, it was surprising I mean, us too. The yeah. whole conversation, and then it was almost like someone was afraid to actually really face the reality of what they were implementing. 
obviously our study that we did, we did see a preponderance of cancer drugs, almost half of the cohort we did was, was cancer drugs because those were the most expensive. It was interesting to us that of the not 10, but 15 drugs, because they bundled six insulin drugs together, 14 of the 15 basically were cardiovascular drugs of some persuasion or the other. We have a somewhat of a, a theory on that. We think that if you actually look at the amount of beneficiaries, the amount of people that are being treated, it's a much, much higher number than if you would have chosen cancer drugs. So we think this has to do with the elections. We think they're trying to sway public opinion. And this was recently published in an article in BioCentury again. Somebody looking to raise funds for the next biotech venture, you know, the investors are always thinking 10, 15 years. You have to, you have to predict what the world will look like, you know, 10 years from now for your drug. What will be the need for a cancer drug or a cardiovascular drug? And so what I think you're telling me is that my modeling of this is not going to be based on disease need, but based on trying to predict short-term political wins 10 years from now, whether someone's going to get short-term gain on upping or downing cardiovascular over cancer. That it's just even more, if you're an investor, what are you going to do? You're going to flee that you're going to flee the sector. Like, are you kidding me? And what's interesting, if you look at the lead assets by mid-stage biotech over the last year, which we've preliminarily done, we've not published anything yet, but we've started doing a preliminary search and you're seeing logically, if you assumed that cancer drugs would be the most at risk because of pricing, you know, which we thought they were. And again, we saw four or five cancer drugs that ranked far higher than many of the drugs that yeah. the Biden administration selected. It's like, what the heck is that doing there? That doesn't make sense. But what's interesting, if you look at the behavior of the VC community on a class, the indication class perspective over the last year, what do you see dropping? Orphan drugs, oncology drugs, neurological drugs. And what do you see jumping up? You see huge gains in cardiovascular investments because large indications that skew much earlier than 65, you know, diabetes, things like that. And you thought, wow, this is obesity. And you thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then what does the Biden administration do with the CMS? What do they do with their selections? They pivot and they hammer the cardiovascular drugs. I mean, I'm sure the VCs feel whipsawed right now. What I think the reality is, is that the IRA small molecule penalty is really like blowing up the cancer moonshot rocket on the launch pad. That's the toxicity in this, and that's reality, and we're living it. And I think the choice to avoid a lot of these cancer drugs is basically to avoid the reality of that toxicity. Push it out, let the American public experience a little taste of the efficacy of some of the uh, price reduction, but push out the reality of these toxicities that we are, we're blowing up the rocket of the cancer moonshot on the, on the launch pad. And not only that, if you look at a lot of the lawsuits that have been filed, a lot of those lawsuits were filed around the cancer drugs that they thought are focused on the oncology drugs. And the, and the Department of Justice itself last week pointed out, well, these companies no longer have standing. So it seems like there's also a maneuver here to try and withdraw some of the Fifth Amendment takings clause arguments that have been filed in court to try and overturn the law. It also seems like there's some gainsmanship there going on from a legal perspective as well. I think whenever you see that kind of behavior or you see a lot of people looking for a lot of exceptions, you, you got to go back and say, well, something's fundamentally wrong here. And then what's wrong and how do we fix it? You know, I'm a I'm a supporter of a number of things in the IRA Act. I think the the ability to to ensure that patients are truly getting in, getting good insurance that actually pays for their problems, which is what insurance is supposed to do. The copay, things yeah, like the $2, that. Yeah, the $2,000 cap is and, great. And, and honestly, if we could have had 1414, you know, 
know, it takes about patent life is twenty years. It takes if we're if we're really good, it takes about six years from you know to get the drug approved. So fourteen That's fourteen ambitious we could have, though, Steve. You, I, I mean, I, absolutely, <laughs> I completely agree. But you know, again, I'm you know thirteen. It's brutal. We can kind of make it work, but nine is it's insane. And so you know, I that's what needs to get fixed centrally is to move 913 to 1313 and all these other things you know the the erratic behavior the lawsuits it's all speaking to the fact that this is not a good this provision is a huge is hugely problematic it needs to get fixed and what the 10 drugs that were selected show is the capricious nature yes of trying to figure this out no i mean it's drug development is hard enough without without this kind of a headwind it's like you know you show up to play hockey and suddenly you find yourself on a tennis court it's like you're on skates and someone's throwing serves at you at 120 miles an hour the goalposts are moving on a moving court on quicksand. It, yeah. The investors and, are just going to flee. And, and we're already, in, and they already are fleeing. I mean, it, we're already seeing it. You know, again, 100 VCs, these are mostly American, largely American VCs. This is, and this is, these are your, you know, this is your 401k investments. This is not just billionaires. This is, this is American investor money that's being put into this and it's moving out of small molecule drug development. 85% of them have said, this is crazy. We're going to move out of this. Let's turn this around a little bit, though. Let's let's talk a little bit about the fact that you're on the board of AZ Bio. You're a guy went to UC Davis, Californian. Yet now you're in Arizona. Before Bio this year, I did a look at some of the investment patterns that were going around in the United States, and I was quite surprised that in Arizona, between you know over the last ten years, basically, there had been a ten times a thousand percent increase in the amount of biopharma healthcare deals that have been going on in Arizona. Why is there so much growth in the life sciences in Arizona? What is it about that state that's causing a huge amount of investment money to flow in? Yeah, it's, it's been really fun to be part of this trend. Um, you know, I have been in California for you know quite a while, both Bay Area and also San Diego. Um, but, you know, Greater Phoenix is, is first in the nation in life science job growth among emerging markets. Um, there's over 6 million square feet of planned development life science facilities in the state. Let um, me point to a few other things. You know, the last 20 years has been about $27 billion in public and private investment into Arizona life science sectors. This is, again, this is leaders that are, that are having foresight, that are thinking of the future, and they've been investing in both public and private side. Um, those investments are paying off about $38 billion in economic impact in 2021 alone. So there's a lot happening. You know, I applaud Arizona for, for focusing on the companies that are spinning out of the universities and private research institutes. Um, Arizona Health Innovation Trust Fund and AZ Advances are two examples. And every governor in our state in the last two decades has made biosciences a strategic priority, including our current governor, Katie Hobbs. Um, so, you know, the other thing, it's a great place to live. I mean, and you have to take that into account. I've, I've seen a new trend that I did not see just even a few years ago where a number of executives are still working out of California, but living here in Arizona. And then you bring, you know, a CFO or a COO or even a CEO lives here and suddenly their teams start to come here. So we're seeing an interesting relocation of some of the top executives here out of California. You know, it's a 
I've I've worked with a number of companies very successfully in San Diego and the Bay Area. It's an hour flight. Frankly, it's easier to fly into the Bay Area from Arizona than sometimes deal with Bay Area traffic. <laughs> yeah, driving from Davis to San Francisco, South San Francisco is a pain. Yeah. You know, one of the big complaints you get or one of the criticisms has always been, you know, 10 years ago, if you talk to the investors, it's like, yeah, you know, we don't want to invest in Austin. We don't want to mm-hmm. invest in Phoenix because, you know, headcount, you're not going to be able to get the depth of bench you need. Do you think that's kind of... I, I've built a couple different companies in Arizona for different types. And um, when I fundraised for a OnClick virus company here, you know, I raised $75 million And every conversation was, Steve, <laughs> you're nuts. How are you going to build the team? How are you going to build the bench? You know, are you sure you can do this? And I am sure in their boards, that was never an issue. And in fact, we had almost no turnover in that time um, of, of employees that I really would have wanted to have kept. I think the turnover was remarkably low. In the, in the boardroom, the VC is thinking about considering funding an Arizona company. They're thinking about all the, all the people they actually know that have, that have moved or <laughs> are in Scottsdale or, or somewhere else in Arizona and, you know, catch a son's game. And there really has not been an issue. Some of that is, is probably true everywhere that there's a remote aspect just because of COVID that we've changed how we work. But I've noticed just a, a remarkable change in that. Um, it's just has not been a, a question. Does the culture since COVID, where people are more used to working remote, is that part of the reason why it's it breaking out? It certainly does, yeah. And um, Cost of living? Yeah, yeah I, I joke, friends in the Bay Area, is you can sell your house in the Bay Area and buy a cul-de-sac in, <laughs> in Arizona. And, but, but, it, but it is, you know, like... With I, a golf club membership, I, probably throw it in. I, yeah, you know? back, back to the mountains, if you like to mount, just mountain bike out your back door. You know, and granted, we have two months of bad weather, but we have 10 months of great weather. And most, most places have about two weeks of good weather, if you're in Boston. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank, with all due respect to everyone from Boston, thank you very much. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I mean, one thing I really do like about the the Phoenix area for company building is that you've got a really great hub downtown, some a lot of good life science lab and office space, but everybody can live within a 10, 20 minute drive with really top schools and and frankly houses and, you know, neighborhoods they can afford, you know, that a middle class life sciences early stage PhD can afford. And you can't say the same thing about most of the California or, or Massachusetts hubs. How important is the Mayo? I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, everyone thinks the Mayo Clinic's from Minnesota, but in fact, their largest divisions in, in Phoenix. I mean, how important is the Mayo as sort of a, an anchor organization? Mayo's been there? great. And Mayo Scottsdale keeps growing. Um, you know, one thing that's kind of unheralded is there's a wonderful partnership between Mayo and ASU where they're able to collaborate on um, scientists from ASU and then data and clinical teams from Mayo. And that actually is a really nice partnership put together. It saves a lot of time on the legal side if you're trying to collaborate, you know, be, be across those two. But it's not just those. It's also um, Barrow Neurologic Institute. The Ivy Brain Center is a fantastic place for brain research. Back to importance of small molecules. Sure. And, uh, you know, and we have some really good, we, we've, we've had, if you think of the biomed industry, I think of it like a tripod. You've got diagnostic testing, you have medical devices, and then you have drug development. So drugs, tests, and devices. We've always in the state been very strong in devices and and diagnostics and and manufacturing too. Yeah, and manufacturing too, which would would tie into all three of those. Sure. But I think what's growing more recently is the the biotech side of it, you know, and and it, it it'll take more work, but again, you know, we've come a long way with from really very little to to where we are now and there's there's more room to grow. But we are seeing a lot more of these biotech executives actually relocate here, which is really interesting. 
Arizona found itself at the center of a lot of the debate over the last couple of years, particularly around Build Back Better and the Inflation Reduction Act because of the independence of, of Kristen Sinema and people were trying to sort of read the tea leaves where she was going to go. She's proclaimed herself to be more independent. Matter of fact, she's left the Democratic Party now, although she still caucuses with the Democrats. But she's sort of trying to carve out, it seems to me, someone externally, carving out a niche similar to the position that John McCain had when he sort of was a quote-unquote independent. How is Christian Cinema's opinion evolving given the realities of the Inflation Reduction Act? I'm sure as a board member of AZ Bio and a very successful CEO who's bought products, you must be speaking to her. What, what's the opinion right now of her office and her staff regarding some of the implications and the sort of unintended consequences of things like the Inflation Reduction Act. Senator Sinema and our staff have really, one thing I applaud about their staff is they do look at both sides and they reach their own conclusion. And they've, she's been a strong champion for health innovation and for patients, both in D.C. and here at home. She's visited our research facilities. Um, she's met with our health innovators. She's listened to our patient advocates. And she and her staff, they ask important questions, and hopefully they, you know, and they, they do have answers that I think um, they listen. And they're, we've had a very healthy dialogue on this. And she's very aware of this issue. And, you know, in a state with so many elderly, again, think of this. The elderly, they, all they've experienced is a little drop in insulin prices. And they're saying, ooh, efficacy, this is great. They haven't yet experienced the toxicity of a bunch of drugs that would have come to market that are just not going to get done. So I think she's very aware that imbalance here is going to have a huge impact on these drugs for the elderly. It's just a matter of how long we, until society really experiences it. So I would appreciate the conversations. I think they've been very thoughtful and, um, you know, She's aware of how complex this industry is. And another thing I think I really applaud is there's a real awareness. Investment decisions take a long time. You cannot, if you want to destroy an industry or a business, just add uncertainty. Oh, God, yes. You know, nothing we do, everything we do is planned out. It's a, All the discussions are trying to predict what patients need 10 years from now. And when you add the kind of, you know, uncertainty like the IRA Act, but also now apparently politics in terms of how we even decide what those those 10 to 60 drugs are going to be every year. I mean, who would want to stay in the sector? And let's not kid ourselves. Arizona is an important swing state in 2024. Absolutely. In fact, it probably will decide the election. Absolutely. If, if any of us think that those selection of that cadre of cardiovascular drugs doesn't have to do with that 44,000 vote margin in Nevada and Arizona, yeah. two key swing states where the over 65 population is doubling, we're kidding ourselves. This has everything to do with those politics. Sadly, and I wish it wasn't this way, but cancer is bipartisan. <laughs> yeah, and it so kills, is it kills Democrats. Yeah, exactly. If it just killed one party, we could all just switch <laughs> to whichever party it was. But yeah, it's well, bipartisan. But then we'd also know the cure. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it cancer is no respecter of, of any of these boundaries, and it's a common enemy. And there are so many thoughtful people that are, um, you know, my age and older that are just very aware that these innovations take time and they have to be invested in. And I think there's going to be a growing awareness that this destabilization, which is really what this is, is going to have, is already having a devastating impact on currently on the small molecule segment. But if we mess with the biologics, you know, um, you're going to see it there too. Where do you see Arizona as a biotech driver, a biopharma driver, you know, say two, three, five years from now, Steve? I, I do hope they come through. I hope, do hope the debates come through Arizona. I, I think there's a lot of politicians on both sides of the aisle here that really are Arizona first. 
and their particular party second. And you know, John McCain set that example, and you know, and, and Barry Goldwater well. before him too. Yeah, exactly. And and Senator Kirsten Cinemas, you know, followed in that same vein. So I do hope we have. Arizona is more the forefront there because when you're an elderly, when you're in that population, you're thinking about balancing, you know, immediate pricing of drugs versus the long-term access to drugs. It needs to get beyond a bipartisan discussion. One other thing I think that is really important in this, and it's a reason why I'm so passionate about Arizona as a bioscience hub, is that, you know, if you're in Cambridge, and you can name 12, you're not in this industry, you know nothing about vaccine, you don't know how hard a COVID vaccine was to do, you don't, you know, inherently know, but you have 12 friends that work in the industry, you know, it's not so scary. You're aware of the good this industry does when you have your neighbors and your friends and the parents that you meet when you pick up your your kids' friends' parents are, are in the industry. And you see that in San Francisco and in San Diego and in Boston. But if we don't have more cities across the U.S. where the average American is exposed to friends and relatives that work in this industry, we're always going to be painted in an incredibly unfair bad light, which is what you know you see continually being done by some of these economists and some of these studies that are simply not you know sharing the facts of what drug development's really like. So that's why I'm passionate about Arizona. You know, I, I hope that elections coming up with more dialogue with more bioscience growing here you know we'll be in a position where more arizonans know somebody that works in this industry they know they know how hard it is they know we're good people they know we're doing the best we possibly can to try to develop a drug and those drugs have to be paid for if we're going to invest in new drugs steve potts a member of the az board arizona biotech giving testimony this wednesday good luck with your testimony this wednesday steve thanks Dwayne. appreciate it my pleasure bye-bye the executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodine. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.